This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, most satisfied customers 12 years in a row, Prince Wine Store and the Bendigo Art Gallery, presenting Elvis direct from Graceland, created in partnership with Graceland. This Australian exclusive exhibition explores the life and style of Elvis Presley. On now until July 17, tickets from bendigoartgallery.com.au. We have Angry Elbow and Sensitive Scotty in different corners of the ring. And I wonder whether it's going to be a week where costings dominate the debate. I don't think some of the gallery, though, have covered themselves in glory either. I think some of the attempts for the gotcha moments on both sides have been pretty unedifying. Note to self, never when you're going to clean the bathroom and cleaning the bath, put your iPhone on top of the shower recess, thinking that that's the safest place for it. So I completely smashed iPhone. So where did I go, of course, back the to The Apple my, Store. I love the Apple Store at Shady. It's so beautiful. It's I such loathe a beautiful... the Apple Store. <laughs> Can I just ask, who did the poos on the bed? Did we work it out? <laughs> I don't remember that bit. It is so disgusting and hours and hours of this public court case reduced to TikTok and Instagram. And also it's a court case. None of us should be feeding into it. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Everybody, welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger for another week, and what a week it is. Sausage sizzle time, voting time, Anthony Green time, Caro. The Green time. <laughs> <laughs> the match of the G. We are on episode 218, Caro, which is just remarkable that we are still here after all these years. And of course, it is election week here in Australia. And welcome to you. And are you ready for your sausage sizzle on Saturday morning? It's going to be a big day on Saturday, but I won't be at a sausage sizzle. Excuse my voice. I'm still a little bit coldy. Got a shocking cold. Um, I'll be... I'm even thinking of voting before Election Day, which I don't normally do, but I've got to go and um, do the game at the Cattery during the day for uh, 3AW, certainly the pre-game. The voting booth opens at 8am in our local area, Caro. You can just wander down to the local community hall. That's true, but there's a community hall in my street, like literally two doors away. I might just go. I might just go and do it. Do I wait until Anthony Albanese's done Labor's costings before I make my of final decision? Of course you do. That's on Thursday. Yeah, look, it. It. I won't be going to. I mean, I won't be going to your Don's party or any other Don's party because I'm going to the Dreamtime game at the G. I guess I'll be keeping tabs on the result. But um, Anna from the op shop and I are going to watch the Tigers um, take on Essendon. I'm sorry. I'd rather be at home with Lee, Fran, Annabelle, Anthony, I don't know, who, Barry Cassidy, whoever's they've got. The I do ABC love election has. night. but I, the, love, I love election and night. And I love dream time and it's terrible the two are clashing, but Richmond have so many wonderful Indigenous players and they won't all be playing. They won't all be playing. All, and they also get a lot of politicians at that game. That's the night where, you know, famously um, Malcolm Turnbull doing all of the speeches, spent the entire time on the text. With That's right, and you, dob- you dobbed him in on this very podcast and he heard. Caro, we've had some correspondence. A lot of people really enjoyed our conversation with Lisa Curry 
last week, which was great. That book's gone to number two, I think, nationally. Number one. Oh, number uh, one Number now. one nationally. It is amazing in just a week. So it's pretty incredible. Uh, Sal Jane Merritt, who is a regular on the Instagram, thanks for all your messages, um, Sal. We really appreciate it. Great conversation with Lisa Curry, honestly discussing issues that many have been impacted by. It was very moving. Suzanne Lynch via Facebook told us, I just watched Australian Stories featuring Lisa Curry Kenny and I have most certainly developed a greater respect and love for her and now I get to listen to her on Your Potty as well as read her book, Well Done Ladies for Getting Her On. And Caro, Kate Richards says, Caro, thanks for the suggestion of The Offer. What an incredible show. I rewatched The Godfather movies first so it all made more sense but I found it impossible to turn off and now I have to wait for episode six. Kate, can I just say uh, that um, I would love to hear, we would love to hear from any potties, which is your favourite Godfather movie, one, two or three? I know I settle on two. Caro, I can't remember what your favourite is. Oh, probably one and two sort of equally. I think the fact that two was such a brilliant sequel has people saying it was better, but Marlon Brando... Mm, he was pretty good. So have you watched The Offer yet? Not yet, no. Oh, I've been, you're in um, for a treat. I've been deep in Gaslit and what was the other one that we've been watching over the... Oh, um, Hacks has returned, which I is saw that. joyful news I for us. I found another brilliant one on the ABC, which you sprung me watching yesterday, Life. It is a. Did. It's Jane, did you know? Did you know that Australia's most hardworking female sporting journalist actually during the day is not doing her research <laughs> on the teams? Not on the, my sick bed day, I wasn't, Corrie. And I, I had a sleepover, Jane, at Caro's house, and I walked in in the middle of my very busy day. Who's on the sofa? <laughs> With Corrie. no socks on and she had a bad cold. It I was, was quite agitated about that. It was four o'clock. I had a hot water bottle and underfloor heating and I was watching Life, which is a British series set in Manchester, a sort of a, an old house which involves four apartments and the lives of the four people. It is absolutely Okay, riveting. I'm writing anyway, it down. What's it in? Life. And where do I watch it though? ABC iView. Okay, good o. Jane, you'd love it too. Um, yeah, well, that was Cara yesterday. And Queenie, gosh, did she greet me like a long-lost friend. Oh, please take me for a walk. My yeah. mother hasn't been out. I finally took her for a walk this morning. She ran She ran like Kimber the White Lion, I tell you. <laughs> Cara, it's a big week here in Australia, the federal election. It's the final week. We have Angry Elbow and Sensitive Scotty in different corners of the ring. And I wonder whether it's going to be a week where costings dominate the debate. Oh, look, it's real. It's hard to tell. The independents seem to have taken a brief back seat, although I don't think I think this will be the election that will be remembered for the Teal candidates and the amount of stories they generated. Um, Did you see Josh Frydenberg? The Guardian called it. They brought in his number one secret weapon, John Howard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, there's some. I don't want to say anything about the former prime minister, but that, I just thought that was really cute. <laughs> I think. Um, look, I, I think what as we sit here today, um, the latest opinion poll has seen um, the government make a bit of a comeback, stage a bit of a comeback, and as we sit here several days before the election, it's looking lo- very likely that there will be a hung parliament. I'm still, it's impossible to predict because the polls got it so wrong last time. I really, really can't tell. was fascinated that um, Scott Morrison finally went on the 7.30 report on Monday night. That was really interesting. That was um, something that was not predicted and 
we weren't sure whether that was going to happen. It's interesting that Scott Morrison saying, come what may, He'll still, he plans to still be the leader of the Liberal Party next Monday. Interesting also that he went on the ABC because he has declared uh, to his advisers that he didn't want to go anywhere near the ABC, eventually has, because, of course, 7.30 has a million viewers a night. Yeah. So, and it's also the public broadcaster, so good idea probably to go on the ABC. And Anthony Albanese is saying if he wins, the first thing he will do will be um, heading overseas. So, look, there's some there's some really interesting different scenarios being whipped up here, impossible to predict what's going to happen. I know you've been on your sick but it, did you but did you see the walk-off by Anthony Albanese at, during the press conference the other day? In no, Paris? no. I, it was very interesting. It was not a very pleasant uh thing to watch. Um, he just received one too many questions about when are you releasing your budget figures and he kept saying Thursday, Thursday. Um, the journalists kept going for him and he just turned on his heels and walked off with a couple of minders either side. It was very unbecoming behaviour. It was not prime ministerial. I don't think, I don't think this is um, some... Difficult moment. I don't think some of the um, gallery though have covered themselves in glory either. Don't you? I mean, I know a lot of them have been, um, you know, sent out as attack dogs, but I no, I, I think some of the attempts for the gotcha moments on both sides have been pretty unedifying, and you know, there's been some really, and we we mentioned um, News Limited's coverage last week. There's been some really interesting stuff written about that. Meg Simons wrote an interesting column in, I think it was in the Fair in the Channel Nine media, which I thought was fascinating about, you know, um, how you know. Basically, the gloves are off. No one's even pretending to be in any way independent. Certainly, um, and and also just some newspapers, particularly in New South Wales and Victoria, just open, just barefaced ad campaigns, really, for the government. Look, um, no, I I don't think the journalism's been that brilliant. I, th- I think because because they got Anthony Albanese sort of day one, I mm. think there's been an attempt to continue to do that, and it's almost been grandstanding, and I don't think it's really given us much about any more that we really need to know. I think if you find your reliable, uh, trusted senior journalist to give you the news, it's been amazing. And I take my hat off, and isn't it interesting that they are all women? Um, Catherine Murphy of The Guardian consistently through this campaign has written really provocative and interesting and well-sourced stuff. Nikki Sava, who, as we know, used to be uh, the media advisor to Peter Costello, has been writing incredibly punchy um, articles in your newspaper, The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, and also Laura Tingle each night on ABC. Lee Sale's interview with with Scott Morrison the other night was just terrific. I thought, yeah, it was good. Um, it she was must have been good. quite tense about that because, of course, you've, you have a prime minister who doesn't want to be there, so you've got to kind of get over that hurdle. And she really stuck to her script and asked the big tough questions. But Laura Tingle's coverage has also been really incredible. I must say, one of the blokes whose whose work I've enjoyed too, more on an analysis, is Paul Paul Daly of the Guardian as well. But Catherine Murphy the other day, Cara, I wonder what your response is to this when she was talking about how Scott Morrison has come out saying he should be more sensitive. He told Current Affair the other night, "I should be more sensitive 
to uh, what Australians are going through during the pandemic. He had no regrets, interestingly, about not joining the Women's March outside Parliament House or addressing them. Um, but he's saying that he wants to change his ways. Uh, he, he does refer to himself as a bulldozer, but then he admits that sometimes he gets things wrong. And Catherine Murphy said in The Guardian, where was this Prime Minister 2.0 when he was needed by Australians as opposed to when he was needed to win an election? So there's a lot of theory going on about what's been happening in Liberal Party headquarters over the past week with them saying, Scott, you've got to present a new style of person because no electorate, no candidate in the country wants you to go within cooey of their campaign. And as he said to Lee Sales, he, I think he said similarly, I, I, I understand people want us to be a more open and and a more wrap your arms around government, and I need to be more open. Do you believe can, leopard, more, can leopards change their spots, and more Caro? sensitive? Well, we'll see, Corey, because I just I think we will see. I just can't see Anthony Albanese as prime minister. I can't envisage it at all. Just can't see it. So it's going to be really interesting. So in terms of other candidates who've performed well from both sides. That's a really interesting scenario because if you think about if, if Liberal is defeated, the, the Liberal National Party are thrown out of office on the weekend, what happens to Scott Morrison as leader of the party? And if Josh Frydenberg lost his seat and in the incredibly unlikely event, although not insurmountable moment that Peter Dutton may lose his seat, who is there in the Liberal Party to, to take over? And you'd probably have to say that... Um, the best performers have been Simon Birmingham, the finance minister, and also Anne Rustin, the social services minister, who's now been given the nod as the future uh, health minister now that Greg Hunt is retiring. So I think they've performed pretty well. Josh Frydenberg is stuck on message. He's a bit dour. He doesn't smile very often. We need to see the real Josh, I think, 2.0. Um, Jane Hume is always the Minister for Superannuation. She's had a lot to say this week because that's been a big issue on the agenda. And on the other side, you'd have to say that Penny Wong, wherever she goes, seems to win the audience, even the media like her. Jim Chalmers, the shadow treasurer, um, and to a lesser extent, Tanya Plibersek, who I think is a great asset and we just haven't seen enough of her. So it's yeah, interesting. Tim Chalmers certainly stepped up when um, Albanese had COVID, didn't he? He was he was very impressive. Well, it's going to be interesting, Corrie. Um, some people have parties where, you know, everyone gets headphones and they're clicking buttons and turning from channel to channel and going from seat to seat. What are you going to do? What I'll you... probably one, be one of those people, Carol. I won't go as far as the headphones. It m- <laughs> might be more like a glass of red wine. But I love election night. So usually what we do is we have it. We share it with another couple of friends. We've done the last few elections together. And we don't, it's not a big party or anything like that. It's just the four of us. And we just sit in front of the television with dinner on the lap. And there are mobile phones going. There's usually a laptop and it's usually pretty much ABC. So that's where we're at Saturday night. The bit, oh, so you don't have several screens. (laughs) (laughs) I, what the most enjoyable thing for me is it is really the one night the one night of the year, of every three years, where politicians are honest and they actually talk and commentate in an honest way. Because After a certain point, Caro, because don't forget they have to wait for the polling booth to close in Perth. Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's true. But, but it, Penny Wong was, re, was, refer, was, she was recalling her night, I think she was on the ABC panel and the last election, and 
she virtually got it six zero one. She received a text message saying, you know, we're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> the exit polls are terrible. And she said it was the most difficult four hours of television that she's ever had. But but you do see them in win in in victory, victory or defeat behave normally, naturally, and honestly. And, it, and you know, there's no spin. They answer questions. They actually answer questions. The, the host of the if they're on a panel, the host of the show asks them a question, and they're honest. I love so, seeing them in their little electro, elect, in their little electoral parties with their. The, the mums and dads helpers and the kids who help yeah. them all around in the backyard having a Barbie and a celebration or whatever it is they do. I know. Look, it, it it's fascinating. Anyway, um, this time next week we'll be sitting in this studio talking about the result. We will. And now before Miles Thompson joins us from Prince Wine Store, we have to also say hello to our other sponsors, the wonderful gang at Red Energy. We love you guys. Um Caro, you had a little mini, I won't call it a mini break, because it, you had an away for your father's birthday, which sounded like a wonderful away. And what a, what a, I suppose, a, um, a treasured moment, actually, to be able to go away for your dad's, what birthday, 80? 88th. 88th birthday. Yep, organised by my stepmother, Juliana. It was just, it was a wonderful trip. Not all the family could come. Where did we go? We went to Hawaii. I've been to Hawaii since I last oh, saw you, Corrie. Look, um, it's a beautiful place, Honolulu. We, I, I was only, because of work commitments, as it turned out, I got sick anyway, but um, because of work commitments, I was only away for um, four nights. Um, it was very generous um, of Juliana to organise all of this. We, My brother and sister were there, three of my sister's children, one of my children, um, partners, some of the partners, my, you know, um, de- departing observations would have loved a few extra days. One of the, if if you can afford to fly to Honolulu, one of the best things to do because you are guaranteed brilliant weather. I've never, I've been there once before, but other people tell me this, if, particularly if you go to the, you know, the main island of um, Honolulu, where, where Honolulu is, um, it, it's just... It, I don't know, does it ever rain? I mean, there was a bit of spitting one for one second for one day. It's always full sun, never gets too windy, certainly not when I was there. The water is beautiful, not too hot, not too cold. You know, in some parts of Asia, it's just always too warm to swim. And in, you know, other places it's too cold. The water is just spectacular. They haven't ruined Waikiki like they've ruined Surface Paradise. It's still a really beautiful town. I mean, yes, there are high-rises, but nothing like Surface Paradise. You look over towards that unbelievable diamond head, which um, Clem and I walked to the top of one day. In fact, the very next day after we walked to the top of Diamond Head, they made it um, bookings only. You've actually got to book online before you go. So we got in early. That was good. Um, you're in America, so there's another whole culture. But is it worth doing it for four days? Oh, well, it was Dad's birthday. So no, yes. I, no, I, I don't mean, of course you would have gone regardless, but can can one have a restful holiday in Hawaii yeah, for four you can. days? The, the one thing I would change, um, and this seems to have happened since COVID, there just aren't any direct flights from Melbourne to Honolulu anymore. You've got to go through Sydney, and that's a pain in the neck because Sydney's international airport is different to its local one. Going to America is a lot more complicated than going to Europe at the moment with the extra forms you've got to fill in and all the onerous requirements. Coming back into Australia, and, you know, as you know, I I got back just before New Year from um, Europe, 
and this wasn't um, a requirement then. There's a new thing called an Australian Digital Passenger Declaration, which you need to fill in online before you come back into the country. Very difficult for anyone older who's not digitally inclined. Um, you've got to upload passports, you know, download this, photograph this. It, it's very, very complicated, and it's it's one um, Clementine was showing me the um, ratings it's been receiving on social media. It's been given the thumbs down everywhere. You've still got to fill out your customs declaration and all that stuff you do on the plane. I can't tell you, Corrie. There are people walking away, people saying they don't have email addresses. Um, one... The anguish. This, this is another layer, yet another layer of anguish to the Australian traveller. I don't know why they've done this. I don't know What's why they've the purpose? done it. Anyway, but um, just in terms of Honolulu and Waikiki, you know, great shopping. The food has improved um, immensely since I was last there in 2013. There are always a couple of smart restaurants. A lot of um, mid-century mid, mid vibe going on there now and old Hawaii celebrated, you know, everywhere. The, the land of the fish taco, the land of the poke bowl. Well, that, of course... Um, Look, it's just a beautiful, beautiful place that I can't withhold. Did you go to the Pearl Harbour, to the museum? No, Dad did, but I went to Doris Duke's house, Shangri-La, oh, which is beautiful. just one of the more beautiful celebrations of Middle Eastern art. And, boy, what a what a woman Doris Duke was. She was a very naughty girl. And, and did you get up and do a bit of a, a no, but we, Honolulu dance but, you know, in sunset, your little grass skirt? Sunset, no, but there were there, there was some lovely Hawaiian dancing at the hotel we were staying at on the lovely garden where you we drank you cocktails. Didn't, you didn't feel inclined to get up and <laughs> Corey, have a I, little sachet? I swam, I walked, I went shopping. Oh, but you got sick, Caro. Well, I got sick at the end, which was disappointing. But that's, you know, that was not Hawaii's fault. So just bring back those direct flights, get rid of that international passenger declaration form. But that you can't have a, have a father who's turning eighty-eight and wants to celebrate with his family. You well done, happy birthday, Octa! You can't help that. We had a really lovely dinner. We well, had the most incredible birthday dinner, and my sister and brother organised. All I mean, my stepmother did, but they organised the you know dinner and the beautiful old Hawaiian postcards with the names. And, and you oh, said there were stunning. lovely speeches and yeah, it was a really look. It was a lovely, a lovely uh, mini breaks a bad word, but that's exactly what it was. So and one, I think a few people have said to me since, you know, so and so says this is their happy place. Well, my sister's like that. She would just go back to Honolulu again and again and again. It's a great town. Well, I I think that's one of the things that also has come out of COVID. We've been reminded how many significant birthdays and opportunities we've missed. So if anybody's having a significant birthday, take the family away or do something special or go just go and have a lovely dinner and celebrate each other. That's a great thing to do. So speaking of good times, let's get Miles in with the cocktail cabinet. Chink, chink, chink. Here comes Miss Jane with the trolley of grog and also a basket of mushrooms that she has picked from her back garden. Caro, look at Jane's produce today. And Miles Thompson is here with us. Miles, have you seen better mushrooms? I'm so desperate to go mushroom picking. They're pine that, mushrooms. Oh, I love pine mushrooms. And they're, they're resplendent with the grass and the peat and everything else. That, Jane, you could have yeah, put them through. Although I suppose if you wash them, no. they get a bit soggy. They're pine needles, Carrie. They're legit. <laughs> and we it's wouldn't trust if you picked them. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Jane had to prove that she'd actually done that. And she's bought a beautiful bouquet. In. But just before we talk with you about Malbec from France, um, I'm interested in what you think is the best 
a variety of wine to drink with mushrooms because I do we do eat a lot of mushrooms at our mm. house. I never quite know what is the best red wine. I think Pinot is probably always a, a good option. Maybe more towards the old world, old world, so French sort of, you know, from Burgundy, something that's got a bit of that earthiness. Sometimes the, a lot of the Aussie stuff's just about that, that sort of sweet fruit, which is great and fantastic, but something that has a little bit more earthiness to it, maybe even like a, some of the Tassie Pinots. Great. Um, you just, you know, and you don't want anything, you know, mushrooms are, they have a distinctive flavour and smell. They're, they're often not like super powerful. I mean, they can be, for sure. And we're, all, and we're often told Pinot in recipes or, to throw mm. some red wine in with the mushrooms. We, what would you yeah. kind of Same suggest? Same thing. I, look, I've, my, my rule is whatever you're, whatever you're cooking with, you should be drinking. Yeah, yeah so that, if, I, if, I, if I, did them, I did it a few weeks ago. I just We had a, knife, a really lovely steak. Yeah. And I cooked up some local form of mushroom. They weren't just your normal, you know, Swiss brown from the supermarket. And I just kept reducing and reducing mm. this really lovely old bottle of red wine that I had. Oh, it was so good. It was so good. But white wine's great too, isn't it? If you, mm. Yeah, if you do absolutely. Veal, veal yeah, or something. Just gives it a different sort of flavour. And, you know, if you talk about like truffles, something like truffles, the real classic sort of truffle dishes are Barolo or Barbaresco, so Nebbiolo wines. Okay. And so you could do that with mushroom too because it's definitely got that really earthiness kind of coming through. So that's a good combo too. Yum. Okay. But, you know, well, truffles well, ho- obviously really strong. Well, so. hopefully Jane's going to share a few mushrooms with Caro and I today. So we'll go home and, and oh, cook they look those wines. Amazing. So tell us about the Melbeck. Yeah, wonderful. So Rendezvous Melbeck, it's called. Um, it's from the southwest France. So, you know, that used to be a sort of bastion of cheap and cheerful sort of wine. But there's a lot of winemakers and, and, um, uh, you know, young winemakers and people who have gone in there sort of revitalised that whole sort of southwest region. So you're starting to see a lot of really great value and fantastic quality wines come out of there. And this is a, this is a collab between a, a gent in Sydney, um, a som up there, and one of his friends who also makes wine in Bordeaux, I think is the story there. And they wanted to sort of source some good value Bordeaux sort of Cabernet-based wines. And they also did this, which is all Malbec, but Malbec is also a minor blending variety in Bordeaux as well. So you see it through that region. So um, the winemaker sort of knows what he's doing with it. And have you ever, have you both had Malbec before? I've had, I've, yeah, Love I've, Malbec. Yeah, I've mm. had Malbec. It's lovely. But how I'm just interested in this partnership between an Aussie and a French and a well, French not, vineyard. These days, it's not that unusual. I suppose the world's becoming more global. More. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The wine industry, I should. So say. Jasper, you know. Um, Ron, Ron Lawton at Jasper Hill. So he does a thing with, oh, I'm, I can't quite remember right now, but he has a project. Uh, is it, I don't think it's with Chaputi, it's someone else, but they have vines that they've sort of transplanted over here. So from, from the Rhone, because they're both sort of Rhone-style producers with Shiraz. So they do it. And there's a, there's a bunch of others too. And Chaputier, wow. Michelle Chaputier has a whole selection of stuff that he does here at Heathcote and things like that. So there's definitely... Cory, like you that. got cross with me posting a few seeds. Seed, um, <laughs> just I was thinking of the illegality <laughs> from the, from of, the of taking wine, vines back and forth. Uh, maybe we're not supposed to mention that they're taking wine. No, they, it must be a big. It must be oh, a lot yeah, of to stuff get, you've got to do. Vi- yeah, it's customs. all got to go through. How through are the your illegal seeds, seeds going? By the way, CSIRO and <laughs> very nicely. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I've, I've, someone someone gave me some Italian. 
heirloom tomato seeds many years ago. Oh, I'm glad you added that because if the police are listening, <laughs> don't go around there now. So just, so this um, Rendezvous Melbeck, yes. uh, I imagine that we are buying, what vintage is it? What so it's year? 2017. So it's nice because it's got a little bit of age on it. So, you know, it softens all those tannins out. So it's a really quite soft and plush. It has that lovely kind of mulberry and sweet spice sort of fruit that you get from Malbec. Which is so nice in those Cabernet blends in the in Bordeaux, like that. You know, using that Malbec gives it a, this lovely kind of, you know, sweet fruit sort of spice hit that um, works really well with the more sort of savoury kind of herbal edge that Cabernet has. But this is all up that lovely upfront plush sort of sweet black fruit and nice sweet God, my, spice. My, and my mouth, I'm salivating. Yeah, here. it's but such a lovely one. I'm thinking about a big bowl of mushroom soup. <laughs> <laughs> and a nice glass of Malbec and, and it a would, bit it would of crusty be sourdough. Perfect with that. Yeah, exactly. And again, this kind of weather, I think it's the, the sort of thing you want. You know, it's not heavy. It's not a huge wine, but, you know, it's starting to get into that sort so of your, fuller body style. your 2017 yeah. Malbec, the Rendezvous, how much are we paying? I think it's 27 on the shelf. So oh, my goodness. With the listener discount. Absolutely oh. superb. So and you're right. Banger. It, it, Great it's, value. It's not, it's not as heavy as a Shiraz or a... Is it quiet? Or, it's, it's prob- or, probably in that sort of cool Sav. climate Shiraz sort of yep. thing. It's okay. what, you know, not not that midweight sort of style that we sort of that's the term we tend to use that medium bodied sort of medium bodied. Okay, yeah, no, mid-weight. I'm not, 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 not heavy. Well, I'm not a big red wine drinker, but I find Cab Sav just a little bit, little too much. Yep, I not mean, as tannic as Cabernet Sauvignon. It's a, it's a little softer than that. But the the Malbecs I've had, I've quite enjoyed. Yeah. Well, that's a great recommendation. Yeah. Twenty seven dollars. How do you do it for the price? Well, we Plus bought the, the we bought the last of it. We were offered a chunk, and we oh, said, so yes, wait, we'll, you're just we'll giving, take it all. Are you giving the leftovers to <laughs> the no? Bodies? We just I hope not. they they asked if because we, we we've already worked with it a, a bunch of times throughout the throughout the last couple of years because we really love it, and then they said, look, we've got you know new vintage coming in and. We're just like, we'll take whatever you've got left. It's sort of like when you're carpeting. We, we love that wine. It's so good. Carpeting, mm. a, you know, a room that, and, you know, you go and buy the offcuts. They're fabulous quality, but there's just a small amount left over and it's just perfect. That's why we're buying the 2017 absolutely. Rendezvous it, it, Your room looks a bit, a bit weird, but <laughs> apart from that. That sounds absolutely it's wonderful, wine, Miles. Yeah. That's a great recommendation. I Thank love you. that. No so, so everybody, don't forget to jump onto princewinestore.com.au and follow the prompts. And what is the code again, Miles, that we tap in? So M-E-S-S and then you'll get 10% off. At the checkout. Out, at checkout. Yeah. How's Fantastic. your fan mail coming along since oh, your nothing. public appearance? <laughs> <laughs> nothing yet. <laughs> nothing direct to Prince anyway. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, there's uh, certainly we, uh, been a lot of secondhand via me. Oh, uh, look, the the crew on the floor always tell me if someone's someone's popped in. And as I say to everyone, if, if anyone goes down to the Prince that's listening, just tell them at the front. I, I'm upstairs these days, so... If you're in there, oh, he's, and, he's and in if management you wanna, now. Caro, he's in management. Right. Available, upper, available upper for autographs and selfies. <laughs> you see, yeah, they, so they, you want it, me to help you find it's something. Like, it's or... like Jane. They start on the podcast <clears throat> and then they just rise up and up and up the management exactly. tree until right. they're so powerful. They're hosting yeah. about five other shows. No, Miles, that's, that's brilliant. <laughs> and that's right. I mean, it is great because that's one thing about going to Prince. It's great to walk around on your own. It's like being in a treasure trove. But yeah. everyone's so lovely and they do help you when you say Absolutely. what you want. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Miles, for coming in. My pleasure. Caro, time for BSF, books, screen and food. And we uh, welcome Red Energy, of course, our wonderful sponsors of this segment. And don't forget, Red Energy are powered by the Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Isn't it time you called Red Energy? 131806. Kick it off. You have a book. 
I do, Corrie. I've delved, I've entered the world of Anthony Horowitz. I've never mm. read one of his books, the brilliant, um, the writer of um, Foil's War. Also best known for children's books as well. Yes. Mm, very and prolific. I reckon he might have written the old Midsummer Murders too. <laughs> Which I mean, probably... oh, stop the presses! That's a scoop. Well, certainly very successful. Do they have? Do they have talented screenwriters on now, Midsummer Murders? I bought this book at um, Honolulu Airport last time I was at Honolulu Airport in 2013. I bought Beautiful Ruins, which is a book I absolutely loved. Um, but this is fabulous. Moonflower Murders was published in 2020. It is. A genre I don't think I've ever – don't know if I've – I've encountered similar but not the same. This is a book within a book. Oh, okay. There is the main story, which is a story about a murder that has taken place at a hotel in England, in Suffolk, I think. The reason the um, main character, who is named Susan and has left the publishing industry in the UK, she and her Greek partner, Andreas, have gone to live in Crete. And in fact, they're running a small hotel in Agios Nikolos, which, where I've actually been. So she's, there's been a tragedy which has seen her leave the publishing industry. Her business has gone broke. One of her most famous authors has been murdered himself. And you don't really get the full story about that for a long time. Anyway, she's living there when a couple come and visit her and say that their daughter is missing and she went missing soon after she called them to say that she's read this book, this crime book, which um, has made her realise that um, the person who really committed a murder at the family hotel in Suffolk is not the murderer at all, if you can understand that. So Susan comes back to England. Picks so up- Susan becomes a sleuth. Yes. Ah, see, this is the cosy crime genre we were talking about oh, the look, other night at Bell's Hotel. It's cosy crime. The amateur sleuth. But you get, but the book, the book that this daughter has told her parents about is at the back of this book. It's called um, Atticus Pund, who's a German detective. Sounds very Poirotish to me. Takes the case. Well, no, you get sort of halfway through the book, and then you get this other book, which she starts reading to try and find the clue, and it's. So that, that's oh, another so, whole book. So Susan reads the book that the girl who's missing said, yeah. I've now worked out who the mur- – so you're actually reading yeah, a and, pretend book within a book. Yeah, and then you, go, then you go back to the Moonflower Murders. I have no idea what this genre is called, Caro, but if it, anybody's still awake, let us know. But Atticus Puddin takes a case. No, it's really interesting. <laughs> it's set in Devon and it's a seaside town where a film star is murdered and – there are clues in there. And oh, some, linking back to the yeah, Some of the characters are based on the characters in, in this beautiful old um, English hotel in Suffolk where um, an advertising bloke, in fact, who's just come back from Australia, who's come out as gay, and um, <laughs> he, he worked for McCann Erickson. Look, it, it's fascinating. Jane, wake up. There's lots of... No, you, really, we're with you. We're with you. Corrie, it, it's, it's a really good book. Well, it's I a, love the idea of two books, a book within a book. And I I, when I great. got to the second book, I went, oh, no, I want to stick Go with the main to the, story. Yeah. But then I was right in. So anyway, Atticus – no, it's not Atticus Pun takes a case. That's a book. It's called The Moonflower Murders. And, Anthony, and what's the significance of the moonflower? Well, it, it's um, a flower that blooms at this particular hotel in Suffolk and, and – um, and it comes out at night. That's why it's called the Moonflower. And um, the, one of the rooms in the hotel is called the Moonflower Room, and and some stuff happened in this room. Oh, 
Oh no, it's it's it, and there's lots of different sub subplots and other plots, and it is, Corrie. I reckon. It, I reckon Andreas did it. Just saying. No, no, he definitely <laughs> didn't. But he does. You, you think he's something, and then he's something else again. Look, it, it's really, really interesting. So there you go. Um, just to make a point to you, Corrie, Anthony Horowitz co-created Midsummer Murders and wrote eleven of the episodes. So there you go. I knew okay, it. Okay, I take it back. I knew it. <laughs> All right, Midsummer Murders has gone up in my estimation. So Jane, you're so good with the research. That's why you're the producer. So he's, he's obviously very rich. Who? Anthony Horowitz. Oh, okay. Yes, of well, course he is. Midsummer Murders. Are you kidding? <laughs> I know. Now, I remember Sarah Winman, the the uh, the author of Still Life, is telling me that once when I interviewed her, and she said because she was in Midsummer Murders a few times, and she said they get a little royalty each time it's replayed, and she said it's always being replayed somewhere in the world. <laughs> well, that, that that is so true. So you're on a roll. Let's go to screen. Is this something you might have watched on the aeroplane? It is, and it's a film I wanted to see when it came out around November, December last year. It's called Licorice Pizza. Oh, yes. It's a beautiful film. I would love to see this too. I suppose it's an indie film. It's set in the San Fernando Valley of California, and it's really a love letter to that whole area of California, but it's set in the 1970s. And it's sort of a love story. The two main protagonists are first-time performers, they're both, I reckon, going to be big stars. The bloke is Cooper Hoffman. He plays a 15-year-old, 15, 16-year-old 15 boy called Gary Valentine, who's a child star, but not really a child star and a hustler. He's starting off a waterbed business. That's one of the things he's doing early on in the film. He meets um, a girl who's about 10 years older than him who um, is running the photographs for all the students at the college he goes to, at the school he goes to, and she's sort of she's trying to find herself, trying to find her way in life. Um, her name is, um, well, the actress's name is Alana Haim. Now she's um, it's her first performance in a film, but she's in an all-girl band with her two sisters. Um, her two sisters are in the film; they play her sisters. Her parents are in the film; they play her parents. And she's a Jewish girl, and there's an hysterical Friday night scene where they celebrate Shabbat. But these two can Cooper Hoffman is the son of <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman, really, and he's oh wow! And and the director of the film is Paul Thomas Anderson, and he did a lot of Seymour Hoffman's. Films, you know, he's now there is somebody. There's somebody well known in this film because I remember wanting to go and see it for the Bradley Cooper's in it. it. He does this hysterical cameo as John Peters, who is the hairdresser boyfriend of Barbara Streisand, and he is not not a good character. (laughs) Tom Waits appears in a cameo, and so does Sean Penn. But it's basically story. They're not drifters, but they're these two wonderful young people who are ten years apart, who. It's sort of a love story, but they're not always in love. They fall in and out of love. It's not really romantic. and It's romantic, but they both have other love interests. They are both going to be big stars. This Alana Haim is absolutely – you cannot take – she's sort of beautiful in an unusual way. You cannot take your eyes off her. It's just an understated – you could say that not much really happens, but so much happens. So where could we see this now, I wonder? You can see it on – if not Netflix, Stan or one of them, just go on search. It was on at the movies and it did reasonably well. Mm. It had brilliant reviews when it came out and I cannot re- – and Licorice Pizza, you remember when we were in our teens and 20s, there was a record shop called Licorice Pie in the city 
and Licorice Pizza was a famous record chain in um, the San Fernando Valley. I at did the time. not know that, but I feel like this this I feel like this movie is about two years old. No, no you no. said last year. It came out late last year, and okay. it's really really good and. I cannot recommend it more highly. Corrie, you have a recipe. I do, and I've flipped actually, Caro, because I came in with one recipe and as soon as I saw Jane's mushrooms that she's been picking from her front garden and back garden, I thought, let's do a mushroom recipe. But I have to preface this potties by saying I haven't cooked it. But it does come from the all-reliable, if Corrie mentions it one more time, we'll scream, One Pan Perfect by Donna Hay which my daughter Francesca declares to be her cookbook of the year because she just continue, continues to find amazing recipes in it. So, Caro, I found this recipe, and I'm going to do this with Jane's mushrooms sometime in the next couple of days. And Chris, will you be having a glass of Miles's Malbec 2017? I might just go past Prince Wine Store, Caro, and pick myself up a bottle of that crispy mushroom tacos with avocado and lime yogurt. Mm, yum. I know it doesn't. It sounds great. So we'll have the recipe on the show notes for all the exact uh, quantities of the ingredients. But they include, apart from olive oil and all the obvious lime juice and salt and pepper and stuff like that, we also are looking at um, a tablespoon of sweet smoked paprika, chili flakes, mushrooms, jalapeno chilies, which of course must be halved and the seeds removed, shredded white cabbage. So when you think about it, this is actually a good one for winter recipe because everything's in season. Coriander, an avocado, flour tortillas, and you serve it with a lime yogurt. And this yogurt is to die for because I've done it for something else. It's at one cup of plain thick yogurt, two teaspoons of finely grated lime rind, two tablespoons of lime juice, and salt and cracked pepper. So really, you just put whiz all that up, um, put the lime dressing or the lime yogurt to one side, serve up the tortilla with the mushroom, the cabbage on the bottom, the avocado, the mushroom, and then the little jalapeno on the top. So you've got like a little stack. Very pretty. I'll show you the photos. The poor old podsters out there can't see this. Oh, that's that's delicious. Jane will also put the photo on the Instagram account. Jane, do you think your pine mushrooms would be suitable for this recipe? I do because they're actually really meaty. They've got quite a robust texture about them. So I think, and yeah, I reckon, and they soak up flavour. I think that would just work perfectly. I'm going to give it a crack. Will they crisp up though? Um, If you get a nice hot pan, yeah. So they're not as juicy and sort of they don't get as sort of slimy as some yeah. mushrooms. So I think they would be absolutely perfect. You could always grill them on the barbie too oh, yes. with this recipe. Anyway, that's delicious. A, we will have that on the show notes. I thought that sounded like a winner, particularly if um, if you are a non-meat eater. Um, there you go. So that's from Donna Hayes, uh, wonderful one pan perfect. Thanks, Red Energy, for that. And I'm up next because I am grumpy and I come back to Australian journalists and I was particularly pleased with the efforts of Brad Norrington and his colleague Liam Mendes in The Australian the other morning because they revealed to us that more than 20 of Clive Palmer's United Australian Party's candidates, and there are 173 of them, but more than 20 of them have faced court in the past or are facing ongoing court proceedings. Now, you might say, oh, what's wrong with a speeding fine? No, potties, we're talking more serious than that. The most serious cases involve nine of the endorsed UAP candidates. Charges faced by some of them include unlawful assault, domestic violence, stalking, 
burglary, trafficking of a controlled drug, custody of a knife in a public place. Now, in case you think at least three endorsed candidates are currently before the courts, two of them for criminal charges and one for a police apprehended violence order application. Now, you might argue who cares, but on so many levels, I'm grumpy about this. I find this such an appalling revelation and a great story, guys. Well done. First of all, it raises questions about how candidates are vetted. So when, as I said, UAP UAP have so many of them in the House of Reps seat and 22 candidates in the Senate. So who's doing the vetting? Secondly, if this is a hung parliament, any of the UAP candidates elected to parliament will have a say in the success or failure of the major policies of whichever party gets across the line. So these people are going to have uh, a say. Thirdly, Former Liberal, now UAP high-profile candidate Craig Kelly, who somebody described the other day, I think it was Clive Palmer actually said, the future Prime Minister of Australia. How that's going to work, Clive, not really sure, but anyway. But Craig Kelly was asked about by The Australian about these candidates with all of these terrible records. And he said, we've got some really outstanding people. Have you, Craig? Have you really? So I just think, like, if this is the best that the UAP can put forward, then God help democracy in Australia. And yet everyone's running their ads. I heard an ad, I think, on 3AW the other day. Did I hear that if if Albanese wins, he's going to sell the Australian health service to China? <laughs> I mean, but we're running the most ridiculous ads and you don't they don't have to be true. They're just complete lies. I mean, I know you take the money from most people, but... Well, the, and the other thing too is I, I gather that the UAP in most, well, pretty much in all of the seats are for their preferences and they are putting down Liberal. So if that means that Scott Morrison gets over the line but he's dealing with a hung parliament and he has to deal with what does he owe these people? What does he owe Clive Palmer? What's the thank you? It's just really sticky for me. I have a big problem with it. Anyway, that's my grumpy. So on to six quick questions. Um, why don't for, you kick it off? Yes, I will kick it off for Red Energy. Which store do you always leave having spent way more than you originally intended? Any Every store. store. <laughs> no, what's yours, Corrie? What would be your? Would yours be Cream Cornwall or Cornwall Cream or that store where I've never seen so much shopping no, done in one hour? No, it wasn't. And called, shipped back to Australia. It wasn't called Cornish Cream. It was Corn, called Cream Cornwall, wasn't it? Yeah, maybe it was, actually. Mm, anyway, there's a lot of shopping was done it? there. Caro, yesterday this happened to me yet again because my phone, uh, <laughs> note to self, never put, never when you're going to clean the bathroom and cleaning the bath, put your iPhone on top of the shower recess thinking that that's the safest place for it. So I completely smashed iPhone. So where did I go, of course, back the to The Apple my, Store. I love the Apple Store at Shaddy. It's so beautiful. It's I such loathe a beautiful... the Apple Store. <laughs> I just can't stand the way. I love the people, the way they help you, and then they talk you into things. And what do you know? What do you think? Instead of having my screen repaired, I left with a new iPhone 13 on a payment plan, of course. But really, look, sometimes I go in there to buy a pair of earphones and I come out with earpods. Sometimes I go in just to say hello or check on something and end up with a new case. I can't go in there without spending money. It's insane. It's insane. It's like going to Bunnings. That would be the one place I wouldn't. In fact, I avoid it like the plague. And you're only going there for a bad reason. I went to... I remember going to one in Washington, in Georgetown once, when either me or Brendan had a phone issue on a trip. And they're exactly the same the world over. To think there was going to be one in the middle of Fed Square, it was quite disconcerting. 
Caro, what has been the ugliest spat of 2020 thus far, seeing as we're only in May? 2022, in oh, fact. Oh, 2022. <laughs> I've gone back two years. No, we're, we're, yes, no, we've moved on from 2020, thank heavens. Oh, without doubt, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. That has been, I mean, it is since... Can I just ask, who did the poos on the bed? Did we work it out? <laughs> I don't remember that bit. She's now saying that the dog would eat his weed. So the dog had chronic diarrhoea. But the other day she was saying that it was him. I don't get it. What what I find most disgusting is this obsessive celebrity culture where this, you know, save Johnny, we love you, Johnny, Amber, you're a tart. You know, it is so disgusting. And, you know, hours and hours of this public court case reduced to TikTok and Instagram and YouTube. It is just so disgusting. And Johnny Depp is obviously using it now to... um, you know, save his brand, I guess, because it's been totally ruined. This is a case about domestic violence. It is one of the most horrible stories about two people and what they can become. And also it's a court case. So none of us should be feeding into it. Oh, it's it's, it's on on every level and the way it's generated so much horrible social media. No, definitely um, Johnny and Amber. Corrie, what is this new phenomenon, the coastal grandmother? Well, is that you? (laughs) Is that you? Yes, I've asked you to ask me a question about myself. Of course it's not you, Twit. Caro, have you not heard about this? No, clearly. Okay, so this was a phrase that was coined coined by an influencer, and in fact the word influencer and you I don't put in the same basket. So that's that's probably why you haven't heard. Her name is Lex Nicoletta, and she said she came up with this a few weeks ago and she's now done a series of TikToks on it. A coastal grandmother is anyone who, quote, loves Nancy Myers movies, coastal vibes, recipes and cooking in a garden. I don't know who that is, probably somebody from America, and cosy interiors. So I was then intrigued about this. Do they have to be a grandmother? Well, apparently not. <laughs> apparently you don't have to because people like Jennifer Aniston are adopting the vibe. But Glamour magazine says coastal grandmother heralds a new kind of hot girl summer with fresh produce, strong cocktails and light linens. Being a coastal grandmother means wearing loose, breathable fabrics and doing strength training by shifting a full glass of Sav Blanc from hand to hand. <laughs> It means shelling peas on a chaise lounge or getting up at six to drink coffee with local cream in the still cool promise of the morning. Coastal grandmother is not about comforting. Uh, sorry, coastal grandmother is not about conforming to male heterosexual expectations of female beauty. It is about being able to spend north of seventy bucks on a single unscented pillar candle. Oh, well, no, uh, you had me up until the seventy dollar candle. I will never you justify that. Well, so, I love so, candles, but I'm not going to pay $70 So for if one. somebody's trying to visualise this, think Oprah Winfrey and those lovely soft cashmere throws, those knits that she wears or sometimes ties around her shoulders. Think Diane Keaton in a polo neck and those Catherine Burton-esque kind of white, wide linen pants that she wears. Think, indeed, Diane Keaton in that wonderful movie, Something's Gotta Give. Remember the house in Something's Great Gotta film. Give? Think Grace and Frankie with Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda. Think Meryl Streep in It's Complicated. Remember yep. when she wanted to design her beautiful new kitchen? Alec Bo- Steve Ale- I'm off Alec Baldwin, but he was great in that film. So that's the vibe, Caro, and I can see you in it. 
Whoa. So Doug Nichols round this weekend, Caro, in footy. Is the AFL doing enough to promote Indigenous leadership in the game? No, they're not, Corrie. Um, certainly not at head office, which is where you've got to lead from the front, surely. There aren't enough Indigenous employees at a high level at the AFL and those who were there. I was horrified to learn a couple of weeks ago that Paul Vandenberg, their most senior football official or manager, I guess, who has a long history at the Port Adelaide Footy Club and a former Canberra Cannons basketballer, one of the more respected Indigenous leaders in sport in the country. He's only four days a week at the AFL. Now, that's got to change. That has got to change. Tanya Hosh, who is the AFL's Indigenous, only Indigenous executive, does not have enough does not have enough staff, really, to do her job and never has, according to many club CEOs I speak to about her. And I, I think if the AFL are trying to promote Indigenous coaches, Indigenous footy managers and other Indigenous sort of leaders around the game, including in football teams, then surely they have to lead from the front. So, no. Corrie, what's your latest grandparent tip? The naughty step. Oh, what's that? What? Oh, maybe it was a bit after your time, your kids' time. Do you remember the Super Nanny TV show? No. Okay, it was a oh, reality show again. Oh, Another no, thing that she's I not into. Reality shows. TikTok influencers. <laughs> Get with the 21st century, Kaz. The naughty step was used to great effect by Super Nanny. So she had this thing where she would put children on the bottom step and make them sit there until they had, well, they had to think about the their actions and then they had to be suitably chastised and then they could come off the naughty step. This is all very well and good if you have a two-storey home. But uh, doing Facebook story time with the Ballarat gang the other night, Willow is three so it was a bit over her head, but Hattie was enthralled by this idea of the naughty step. They don't have any steps really. She said, what happens on the naughty step? And I said, well, when I'm coming up to look after you in a couple of weeks... If you're naughty, I'm going to put you on the step and you can't leave it until you apologise and you think about the consequences of your action. So anyway, both kids were mortified by this. She said, but they said, we don't have a step, you have an outdoor step. We'll go outside. You know, like this is going. <laughs> so apparently when they, they got off the phone, they said to their mum, Mopsy's going to stick us on the naughty step. They were not happy about that. I did also tell them to go to the sausage sizzle so basically, on Saturday when their mum and dad vote. Basically, it's a threat. It's a, it's a threat, but it's a place. But it's a really good idea because you remove the child from either hurting themselves or a tantrum or hurting you or, or your anger or whatever, and you put them on this step. And they can't go up and they can't go away and they have to think about it, you know. They have to think about what they've been doing. So it's time out, like it's an immediate time out where, where neither party gets agitated. Just pick the child up, stick it on the naughty step. Is this bad parenting, I wonder? No, I think it sounds all right, although I don't see why a tantrum wouldn't continue on the naughty step. <laughs> I don't know why that suddenly means it's going to end. Well, if you've seen, if you've seen them, you and I have seen, or are watching or have watched The Staircase. Yeah. <laughs> Is that the modern version of banging two children's heads together? <laughs> This is not funny. Okay, what's your amazing fact for the week? Well, um, in in keeping with what I've been doing over the last week, it's a Hawaiian fact, Corrie. Um, fascinatingly, um, Hawaii was a subject and, and this sort of grassroots battle that is growing for independence. It's been growing now for 20, 30, 40 years. It was on Foreign Correspondent on the ABC last week. But um, Hawaii actually gained its independence 
from Great Britain in 1843. And as you know, as most people know, the Americans, basically, it was a hostile takeover. They stole Hawaii. I didn't realise that. In 1893. And because the Queen, Queen Lilalua Kalani, Lilalua Kalani, was a peace-loving woman and they were a peace-loving nation, they just allowed the Americans to move in and steal steal them. Mm, It sounds like what happened here in Australia a couple of hundred years ago. So they basically overthrew the Hawaiian kingdom and, you know, the Americans, as we know, turned it into their own personal playground in a way. Um, And, you know, it it is interesting because there is a subclass of locals and they don't call themselves homeless. They call themselves houseless because they have a home. It is the land. It is the islands of Hawaii, but a lot of them don't have houses and you see it in Honolulu. You see it everywhere. Um, but um, even though Hawaii didn't become a state, I think, until the 1950s, but, you know, for all that time they'd been taken over by the Americans and there is a group who want independence. They have their own flag back. When they win big international sporting contests, they might wear the American flag at the big international competitions like the Olympics, but when they come home, they wrap themselves in the Hawaiian flag. I don't think this is a debate that's going to go away. I mean... It's such a fascinating story, isn't it? The island is so far away from the mainland of America. And I've often wondered about Alaska for a similar reason. Alaska, there's Canada in between. How did that all come about? Yeah, so anyway, the Brits owned them. Then they were independent for about 40, 50 years. I mean, you remember um, in Queen Victoria's time, the the kings and queens of Hawaii, would they be in the front row at the big international events and the expos? And, mm. you know, they were a widely respected and well, very respected people and their royal family was respected. And um, the, the queen obviously allowed the Americans to steal her, her country because she was peace-loving and they were a peace-loving people. They didn't want a war. And look at what's happened. And is there much industry Completely, there's industry now, but um, and it's interesting. A lot of native Hawaiians refer to themselves as Hawaiian and not American. And a lot of Americans who've moved to Hawaii claim themselves as Hawaiians too. So this is a watch this space over the next decade or two. How interesting, Cara. That is a really great fact. If any of you would like to comment on any of the incredibly interesting content you've heard on our podcast today, don't forget we love to hear your messages. You can connect with us via Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. And if you would like to get our show notes delivered to your inbox each week, just hit the sign-up button on Facebook or on our show notes down the bottom. And you can send us an email if none of that makes sense and we can subscribe for you. Just email feedback at dontshootpod.com.au. Thank you, Red Energy. Thank you, Prince Weinstor. Thank you, Miss Jane Neald. Thank you for the mushrooms. And, Carol, what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger. This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, most satisfied customers 12 years in a row, Prince Wine Store and the Bendigo Art Gallery, presenting Elvis direct from Graceland. Created in partnership with Graceland, this Australian exclusive exhibition explores the life and style of Elvis Presley. On now until July 17, tickets from bendigoartgallery.com.au.